It may not make a lot of sense, but uh, despite my fear of heights, I kind of want to go skydiving. Uh, I don't know why, but I, the, the idea of being that high up, I think the heights thing just kind of fades away, you know, like at this point it no longer feels high up because everything below is just so tiny, you know, like it's not that big of a deal. And one of the reasons I've been converted to this being a possibility is that I had a friend who said, Caleb, you should go skydiving because you can do everything wrong and you won't die. And I said, everything wrong? He goes, yeah, I went. And I, of course, it was a tandem jump. That's usually how they start you out. First time is you got somebody strapped to your back who's experienced. He said, we jumped out of the plane and I looked out and I was just so overcome by it all. I didn't do anything until we were sitting on the ground. I didn't pull a, pl a thing. I didn't do anything. I was just like, whoa. And the guy who was tandem to me did all the work for me. Like he just made it easy. He made it simple. He made it safe. And so you can go and completely lose your mind and not do anything you're supposed to or do anything they trained you to do. And the guy who strapped you will fix it for you. So you'll be okay. And I thought, oh, that sounds safer. You know, I like that. I like something where I cannot cause myself harm. I like it where it's perfectly safe to do it. We kind of like to create safety. Uh, we like to be places where we feel safe. Uh, we talked earlier about all the kids we have. How many people are baby proofing their homes now, right? Like I'm sure there are many of you in this room that for the first time are thinking, wow, that's really dangerous or, oh, geez, that's dangerous. Uh, this is one of my favorite, the pool noodles on your table. Uh, you make your house look like a Chuck E. Cheese, but you don't have to worry about kiddos running into the corners, right? And we try to make it so there's no possible way my child will kill themselves in this house. And so we put bumpers on everything. We put little plugs, things, and all the electrical outlets. Uh, you know, we strap everything down, bolt everything to the wall. We have to make sure that there is no way that I could be any way hurt or my child could be hurt by this house. I think there is a temptation for us to safety-proof and dummy-proof Jesus so that Jesus couldn't possibly hurt us, right? We take Jesus and we wrap him in so much bubble wrap that there is no way that there is a pointy corner to Jesus that might possibly prick our conscience, right? Because Jesus is so great and so wonderful and so accepting and so much like me, that no matter what I hear from God's word, it won't, you know, affect me. It won't actually make me change my life. I like to have control. I like to be the guy in the tandem jump that when Jesus starts making me go too fast and too hard in a direction I'm not comfortable with, I can pull the cord and pull the chute and slow it down. Because Jesus, I don't know if we need to go there. This sermon series that we've been in for a long time now is about the book of Matthew. And we have talked about how in the book of Matthew, Jesus constantly is creating this upside-down kingdom. He is taking our expectations and he's subverting those expectations. So that he says things that kind of shock us and surprise us. And we're getting near the end of the study. Today is chapter 25. Uh, we'll have three more weeks, I guess, 26, 27, 28. And then we'll do some things for Christmas. But chapter 25, I think, is really interesting because Jesus says some things that make everybody a little uncomfortable with him. As you read through this chapter, you will at some point go, oh, I don't know if that's what I like. 
uh, Jesus, I feel like you're kind of meddling with my approach to things. And so I want to read this passage today from that perspective of are we making Jesus safe? Or does he have something that's maybe a little wild, a little uncomfortable, a little sharp that might cause us to think about things in a way we don't already? And my guess is that if the beginning of the passage doesn't bother you, the back end of the passage will bother you because it's this lovely passage that upends our expectations. All right, Matthew 25, we're going to start here in verse uh, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for, the least, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, this passage very early on is Jesus um, critiquing a, uh, a sanctimonious Jesus. A, uh, a Jesus who is kind of a strict rule keeper and a checklist follower, right? You have this uh, scene in heaven where it's sort of like this judgment scene where God is saying the people who did his will and the people who didn't do his will. And what's interesting for many of us is the things that Jesus does not talk about. When he is trying to determine who has done his will and who hasn't done his will, at no point does he sit down and go, all right, um, let's see, doctrine of atonement, did you get that right? Check. Uh, did you understand the proper nature of heaven and hell? Check. Did you make sure that you gave 10% of your income to the church? Check. You know, like those kinds of things that we talk a lot about in church, a lot of the doctrinal kind of stuff. These are not the litmus test. This is not how Jesus determines are you doing the things that I want you to do? And so if our vision of Jesus is sort of this ultimate rule keeper who has this big book of all these things you've got to do and all these things you've got to believe, and that ultimately he is going to see if you can get a passing score on your Doctrine 101 test. That is an image of Jesus that is upturned here because that is not the way Jesus judges these people. Instead, what we see is a conversation about how you treated those who didn't have food and didn't have money and didn't have a place to stay and people in prison, the people that really had a hard time and suffered. Jesus says, in the end, I am going to see what kind of person you were based on whether or not you took care of the people who really needed help. And he washes away a lot of these things that we sit here and spend a lot of time on. And he goes, you know, uh, it's not that those things aren't important. It reminds me a couple weeks ago, remember tithing the mint and cumin. He goes, it's not that those things aren't important. It's just there's weightier matters of the law. And it appears that the weightiest matter for Jesus 
is whether or not you take care of people who can't take care of themselves. I do want to take, uh, we're going to make a, a side uh, venture here. Uh, I promise we'll be back to the main sermon very soon. Um, it's fascinating to me that Jesus so unequivocally and easily includes people who are prison in prison. Jesus does not say people who are falsely convicted. He doesn't say people who are in prison and don't deserve to be. Jesus says, when you take care of somebody, most of these categories for us are people who would be homeless or people who would be housing insecure or people who would be poor, right? No food, no place to stay, etc. But then he ends it and goes, or people who are imprisoned. It's really easy for us to say, hey, if somebody's in prison and particularly if they deserve to be there because they committed a crime, tough luck, whatever. And we sort of anathemize that's not the word. But anyways, we treat them like they're anathema, right? Like they're no good to us. Like they're separate. Like they should be away. We're scared of them. We're frightened of them. And Jesus, with no, no hesitation at all, says, you know what? When you're good to somebody who's suffering through prison, you're being good to me. Uh, I think it really challenges us to rethink incarceration and prison and how people get there and why people get there, it's not a defense for being doing illegal things. And I would encourage you, don't go to prison, okay? Prison is generally a very bad place to be. But Jesus has a kindness and a compassion in his heart for them that I don't hear anybody in our society, Christian or not, conservative or liberal, anybody. I hear very few people who talk about, you know, we really need to help and look out for people in prison because they're having a hard time. It's like, well, they deserved it. They're in the slammer, whatever. And I just, it struck me this week that Jesus includes that, that being uh, without a home and being in prison are similar in his mind, right? These are the categories he groups together. All right, we're back to the main sermon. If you are going about Christianity in an us versus them approach, right? Red team versus blue team, good guys, bad guys. And for some of you, maybe that's like, Christians versus non-Christians. For some of you, it's my denomination versus their denomination, whatever. And if you think that when we're all done, when all is said and done, God's going to look down and he's going to go, uh, you know what? You know, five points to Gryffindor. The red team has done better than the blue team and figured out all this stuff. Jesus goes, no, I'm going to look at it and see, did she take care of people? And the amazing thing is it's unintentional. Many of us, if we're honest, kind of like to take care of poor people because we know this passage is there and we want to make sure we get to heaven, right? I know as we read this passage, there's one or two of you that's like, oh, if this is that important, I guess I should show up to Crossroads on Wednesday, right? You know, like that's kind of the way our brains work. And Jesus says, when this happens, you'll go, I didn't do that. Like, <laughs> this is so funny. I almost wonder if Jesus is using hyperbole here. Human nature is generally not to get credit for something and go, oh, I don't deserve it. I didn't do it. But nonetheless, that's how this like plays out, right? Jesus says, you took care of all these people. And they go, what are you talking about? We don't know what you're, what you're talking about. And Jesus goes, that's the great, the best part is that you took care of those people because it was the right thing to do, not because you wanted heaven points. You took care of them because that is the way God wants you to be. And that's what good people do. And you didn't do it because you knew this test was coming at the end and that would get you an entry ticket. You did it because it's the right thing to do. And so if you have a Jesus who's an us versus them, team-picking, sanctimonious, litigious, doctrine-filled rule keeper, that is your bubble wrap that you have put around Jesus. 
And what he is trying to, to, to push you on is that, you know what? It really is much more important to take care of other people than to be real worried about whether or not you've got the right opinion on the right issues. But he doesn't stop. Jesus has more to say. Uh, finishing out the story, verse 41. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. All right. So here's what we've got to deal with that's really frustrating for some of us. Uh, we love Jesus and we love how gracious and how kind and how good Jesus is. Um, and generally speaking, as modern American Christians, maybe a few of you aren't this way, but most of us, we really don't like hell. The idea of punishment, particularly any sort of eternal punishment, whether that's eternal lack of existence or eternal torture or whatever, really grinds in our gears. And the challenge that we have is that there is no one in all of Scripture who talks about hell more than Jesus of Nazareth. All right, like we've done a pretty good job of like not reading those verses. I've probably been guilty of cutting them off at the end of a sermon when I've got my selection of readings up here, right? But this passage, man, it's real clear. Jesus goes, you've got eternal punishment coming your way and you deserve it. And we're like, Jesus, what are you talking about, right? Like we have all these concerns because we've seen the way hell gets used in the church culture, right? It's this big eschatological stick that we hit people with. You know, you've got to believe what I believe or you're going to hell. If you're not like me, you're going to hell. And we just hate the way that it's been employed and it's been used. And we've seen the way it's been even abusive and sort of psychologically manipulative in all the ways that the doctrine of hell just really gets us in trouble. And we just, we don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. And so what we've done, because it makes us uncomfortable and because we don't want to have to sort through the fact that our loving, beautiful Savior that we all love also talked about hell a lot, is that we create a new version of Jesus. It's plushy Jesus, right? Oh, I love this Jesus. I can cuddle with him. I can go to bed with him. I can pet his hair. And all he ever does when I squeeze him, he goes, I love you. And that is all he ever does. Uh, he never complains about anything. He never critiques anything. And he certainly would never, ever, ever tell somebody that they were going to hell. And plushy Jesus is just simply not the historical Jesus. He's just not what we have in Scripture. It's, it's not who he was. He would talk about these things. So what do we do? Now, I, uh, this is hard because I, too, have concerns about hell, particularly as hell has been laid out traditionally in Christian theology, and not even Christian theology, but Christian pop culture. You guys have heard me say we know much more about hell from Tom and Jerry than we know from the New Testament, right? Because that's where we learn things, is these cartoons that had images of guys with pitchforks and escalators and, you know, Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny. I'm not kidding. 
you learned a lot of what you know about hell from Bugs Bunny. Because if I sit down and I talk to you about it, you will give me a list of things. And I will say, that's in Bugs Bunny, that's in Bugs Bunny, that's in Bugs Bunny. None of them are in the New Testament. I've done it enough times. I know it's true. Like the culture like gets us. So hell is complicated. And this is not a full sermon on hell. But here's what I think we've got to say. Um, Jesus gets real worked up and real angry. And at the very least, Jesus is ticked off about our lack of concern for the poor and those who are in prison and people without homes and stuff like that. And what's really interesting here is he says, I don't care if you're ignorant of it. Right here, they say, often in church, we usually go, you know, you just do your best. And as long as you try your best, that's great. This is one example, and I don't like it, we're trying your best isn't enough. <laughs> because they say, well, we never saw you hungry. We never saw you in need. We never saw the need. And Jesus goes, I don't care if you saw it. It was all around you. Ignorance is no excuse. If you can live on planet Earth and be unaware of the needs of the poor and the sick and the hurting and the people in prison and the people who don't have enough food and the people who don't have homes. If you can walk around Providence and not see that homelessness is a problem that some people struggle with and something you want to do something about, I don't care if you didn't see it. You should be able to see it. You should know this. And their ignorance is not an excuse. And so Jesus says there's going to be punishment for this. There will be justice for this. Uh, we love the, the blindfold and we love the scales, right? When we see lady justice, sort of this typical, uh, in our culture, this is how we describe justice. We have these statues that look like this. And often the woman has the blindfold and she has the scales. And we go, oh, it's fair and it's equitable and it's great. But most often justice also has a sword in her hand because she will met out punishment on those who do what is unjust. And I don't know totally what to do with these passages, and I don't have a great all-around perspective on what to tell you about hell. But I do know that if my Jesus is so accommodating and so kind and so gentle that he would never suggest that people who are callous to the need of hurting people are worthy of judgment, it is not the Jesus who's in the book of Matthew. It's not. It's just a... It's a ripcord Jesus that as soon as I feel uncomfortable with it, pull the ripcord and pull back, right? I put the bubble wrap around so no pointy, sharpy parts get to me. Now, my guess is that for most of us in this room, the first critique of Jesus, the non-sanctimonious Jesus, we're like, yeah, awesome. Take care of poor people. Don't be, you know, a big rule stickler. Woo, 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 woo. And then we get to this Jesus where he's like, oh, and by the way, if you don't care, take care of the poor people, you're going to hell. We go, oh, I did, no, no, turn around. Where do we go? This is a very off topic. And I guess my suggestion this morning is we just, we got to have dynamic tension. Does that make sense? There are always going to be things about Jesus that we don't totally like, and it doesn't mean we just throw them away. Um, similarly, we can't be really upset about injustice and then be upset when somebody tries to right the injustice as well. Right? This is what Jesus is saying, is if you don't do the right thing towards people, there's, there's, there's something that happens out of that. And we have to face kind of those problems. Um. It's our sincere desire for those of us that follow Jesus to try to be more and more like him. And so I would just ask you, let this passage today be pointy and sticky and difficult 
in whatever way it's pointy for you. If you're a great rule keeper and you're like, man, Jesus just really oversimplified the Bible. Let that bug you this week that Jesus is not, uh, is, is, got, is so general about just taking care of poor people and doesn't seem to have anything about baptism in this passage. If that's you, let that bug you this week. And if you're the kind of person that like, oh, Jesus, you could never judge somebody for anything. And then you see him speaking in these harsh terms and that's what bugs you. Let that bug you this week. Uh, let, ask yourself this question of, can I really care about justice if I never want it to actually bring justice, right? If I never want anyone to ever experience punishment, if I never want anybody to experience correction, um, do I really care about the injustice or am I just a, ah, shucks, whatever, right? Uh, we see this with parents. Uh, parents that never, ever get on to their kids about anything generally have really bratty children, right? <laughs> generally, you have to at some point tell your kids, nope, this is not okay. We can't go any further. And so Jesus' mercy towards those who are most vulnerable in this passage, but his judgment towards those who would not care for those people is a tension that we have to live in. And um, yeah, it's my hope that wherever that tension is for you, that you'd let it just sit and stew a little bit and you'd think about it as you consider what Jesus is calling us to. If you're new to our church, uh, we do a Q&A at the end of our sermons. should have mentioned this earlier. If you have questions about today's passage or the application or anything like that, I would love to uh, field those questions. I mean, talk a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and it's my opinion. Okay, we have now moved into thus says Caleb, not thus says the Lord. But it is my opinion that there are levels of motivation and that for some people, like, oh, I don't want to go to hell is a motivator that gets them moving in faith. But it's my hope that we grow as we get older, right? So, uh, again, I, I always use children and, and, and child rearing just because that's my life all the time. But um, when you have little kids, right, and you, you tell them, do not eat all that candy or you're going to get really sick, right? And at some point, most of us get old enough that we go, I'm going to not eat all that candy because it's not healthy for me. I won't feel great tomorrow. I want to live a long time. Like we start to get much more mature answers for why we don't eat candy all day and why we eat salads. It's because I'm a mature adult and I understand that my ultimate thriving works better when I eat the salad than when I eat a bag of Skittles, right? And that is, I think it's the same for some of the spiritual stuff. Some people need to start at like, oh, I really want to, I'm really sorry and I don't, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to get rid of my shame and I want to be able to move on. I don't want to go to hell. But hopefully, I think as time grows on, we go, you know, I'm so in love with who God is and what God's done for me that I want to do the right thing because I love my father and it makes him happy and I want to make him happy. You know, like to me, that is a much more beautiful and moving experience to say, I do things for the pleasure of God instead of I do things to avoid the displeasure of God. Uh, and I think that's something we've all experienced with our parents, right? At this point, most of us want to do stuff to make our parents happy because we just love them, not because we're afraid they're going to spank us. And so it's, uh, that's a, a maturing thing, I think, with God, too. Yeah, so let me give you, let's, I'll mention a couple resources that have come to my mind recently. Uh, the church that we work with, Dallas, Drew's Church, they help support a group called City Square in Dallas. And their whole purpose as a ministry is to get people in housing. 
because they have exactly this theory. They said, it doesn't matter if you have a job. If you don't have a house, you're not going to have a job long. And so they've said the real way to tackle homelessness is to give people homes. <laughs> and that sounds like really obvious, but they found that often we try to do the opposite. We try to give them career training. We try to help them build the other parts of their lives so that they can get into housing. And their research has shown it doesn't work. And they've done great work in Dallas of creating housing to get people out of homelessness and then they get into careers and stuff. Another movement that I think is very interesting is kind of the tiny home thing. Uh, the Agape Church of Christ in Portland, Oregon, who's part of our Kairos network that we're involved in, they just built a like 10 unit village on a little plot of land that they bought that are houses with two or 300 square feet for somebody to be able to live in. And again, it's kind of just given to them. Like as long as you follow the rules here, you can have this. And again, that's been super helpful. It gives them a place to stay that's their place. And that often is a great first step. So I would just say those are two cool things to check out. There's a lot of this in Oregon, kind of this tiny house movement for helping people with homelessness. And City Square in Dallas is doing good work too.